Good morning, everyone. I want to start this portion of our time together um, by bringing up the the idea of um, having a, a story, having a defining story. Um, I think that we all individually probably have a go-to story that defines us or defines our sense of who we are and where we come from. Um, this could be the story of maybe your family, you know, how your family got to where they are. could be a story related to nationality or ethnicity. Uh, could be the story. It uh, could be a very specific story of like a particular event you went through individually in your life that kind of gave you a sense of identity and who you are. Um, a story that left a significant kind of impact on you. And um, I grew up in the evangelical, you know, church culture, and I know a lot of you did too. And for those of us who grew up in that culture, um, a lot of us will think about our story of our conversion, right? Um, particularly if you had like a really I actually didn't have a very dramatic, I used to say it's the most boring testimony in the world, um, but uh, some people do, do have very dramatic uh, stories of conversion, how they became Christians, and a lot of people think about that as their defining story. Um, and actually, in I used the word testimony a minute ago, we, in, again, in that church culture, we typically call it your testimony, right? Um, my point is that stories are really powerful things that give us a sense of our place in the world, who we are, where we're going. Um, and not only do we individually grab onto stories that give us like an individual sense of that, but also corporately too, uh, communally. There's corporate stories. I think that groups of people grab onto stories to make sense of their identity as a group too. And that can apply to churches. That can apply, obviously, it definitely applies to nations. Um, I think an example of a corporate story that a lot of us will be familiar with is that is the kind of defining story of America, right? Which is probably what? What, what comes to mind when you think about the defining story of America? Yes, the Revolutionary War. Absolutely. Not, not a trick question. Everyone's like, I'm afraid to say anything because it'll be wrong. Uh, it's, like, it's like high school. Um, the, uh, yes, I would argue that the defining story of America is everything wrapped up in the Revolutionary War narrative. Like, what are, what are, what are just some events that come to mind when you think about the Revolutionary War? Just... Paul Revere's ride. I had a Boston Tea Party. Those are two things I've written down. What else? Pilgrims? Well, that's earlier. But yes, definitely. Yeah, that definitely feeds into it. Crossing the Delaware. Yep. La- wow, those are the exact four things I'd written down. Yes, but that but this goes to show you, this goes to show you how embedded these are in our minds. Yeah, right, you got it. Uh, these are embedded in our minds, right? We kind of just breathe that air as Americans. Like, it is a story that gives that we all share. And there's a lot of scholarly debate about should those have been the right events? Should other events have been, you know, the ones that we think of, right? There's a lot of debate about that, especially today. I'm not going to get into that, but my point is that we instinctively share a story that has events and has characters, people like Washington, right? Especially Washington. Um, these narratives and these events and these characters give us a sense of who we are, who, where we come from, what makes, in this case, that story gives us uh, an idea of what makes America distinct, right? Um, and so I'm starting here. We almost can't revisit this point too often, I think, because stories carry so much power in our culture. But also, also, this is a story. You know, the Bible is a story. And it's a story that we as Christians, as Paul says in the New Testament, it's a story that was given first to the Jews that then everyone we can get grafted into. You know, we get to share in this story. And it, it, should, it should be if you're a... I guess uh, if you really are a Christian, this story should give you more of a sense of identity than any other story, actually. 
particular stories about nations, particularly the American story, um, this should be the story that gives you a sense of place and purpose and, um, well, salvation. And so I'm, I'm, I'm camping out on this for a minute because what we're going to start looking at today, many of you know this already, um, we're going to start looking at Exodus. And Exodus is, within the broad story of scriptures, Exodus is one of the most crucial stories within that bigger story, particularly for the Jewish people. Um, it's a defining story for the Jewish people. And as we are, as I said, Paul said, as we have been grafted into the Jewish story, which has been broadened out to Jew and Gentile, um, it's really helpful. I think it's really important for us to have a good sense of what this story means. And so that's a big reason why we're going into it today. But um, really, really brief context for Exodus, because I know we just finished up our Matthew series, and um, a few people have been like, why are we pivoting to Exodus after that? That seems like, where did that come from? Um, well, it came from my brain, but I think there's more reasons than that, hopefully. Uh, Exodus is a few, con- a few context things for Exodus. It's the second book in what we call the Old Testament. But it's also the second book within the Pentateuch. Has anyone heard the term Pentateuch before? It's the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books, Pentateuch, you know, means first to five. Uh, it's the second book within that that five-book unit, and those five books really are a literary unit. Like, those five books are a story within the bigger story. And so this, it's a story within the story of the five, which is in within a story of the big <laughs> story. So it's a really, really pivotal, pivotal, important, uh, important narrative. It forms, the Pentateuch really arguably forms a narrative kind of backbone for a lot of what happens in the bigger story of Scripture. And the Exodus story within the Pentateuch is the story, of course, probably a lot of us have seen things like the Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments, right? Like, it's a, it's a story that tells about how God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and how God delivered them from that position and actually turned them into a people. That's the story of Exodus. And if you, you can take those general concepts and you can say, God has made us into it. God has delivered us from bondage and turned us into a new people, right? It's, it's the same trajectory. And so this story provides a crucially important, I think, framework for understanding what it means that God saves and God makes a people. Uh, it definitely was crucially important for the Jews. And it provides a really important backdrop for what Jesus did, actually. And so we just looked through Matthew. We just looked at what Jesus did through his life obviously then through the cross and resurrection, and the Exodus provides a really, really important backdrop for a lot of things within the story of Jesus. So, for example, um, when Jesus is baptized, he goes through the water, right? Um, but most importantly, I would say, when Jesus dies, he, wa- he chooses to walk into Jerusalem during the festival of what? Does anyone know? It's another pop question. Festival of Passover, yes. Jesus chose, this is really easy to to forget. When you look at the story of Jesus, John 10 says that Jesus, he says, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I choose to give it. And Jesus chose when to walk into Jerusalem and provoke the confrontation that ended in his crucifixion. He chose it. And he chose the festival of Passover. Does anyone know what Passover points back to? What even the term Passover means? I'm like asking tons of, I know you're all like, I didn't know I was going to get grilled today. Uh, Yes, it points back to Exodus. Yeah, and it points back to when, we're going to get into all this as we get into the story, but Passover refers to the passing over of the angel 
when the firstborn were killed in the in the tenth plague. So the Passover festival reminds the Jewish people of what happened, and Jesus chose the Passover festival to walk into Jerusalem to provoke what we would what would become the cornerstone of our faith, which is his death and his resurrection. So my point is, there's so much more that could be said about this. Um, My point is just to, I guess, indicate why we're going to Exodus right now, to look at the backdrop of all of these things that we believe that that God did through Jesus. Um, And I think it's going to be really fun to look look at this story again. Um, This is the story that in my experience, it gets relegated to Sunday school, you know, because it's got all the fun stories, right? Of like, well, fun. Actually, a lot of them are pretty dark. Uh, but it's got a lot of the the the, st- the, the burning bush, right? Um, Moses being, you know, kept safe through the Red Sea, or sorry, Moses being kept safe in the Nile first, and then the burning bush. Obviously, the uh, plagues on Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the giving of the Ten Commandments, all that stuff. It's all in Exodus. Um, so I think it's going to be really enriching for us to look at it together. But always look at it, looking at it with an eye towards what we know God... Ulti- so God saved the Jewish people from this particular situation, but we know that God ultimately saved us from our bigger situation of enslavement to sin and death. Um, so that's why we're looking at Exodus. We're going to spend some time in this over the next couple months. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to do something a little different, um, a little different than what we typically do. Um, but I think it's going to be... I think it's going to be good. Um, so... I'm going to, actually I might need some help, so I don't know if a couple people would be willing to help me hand these out in a moment. These are printouts of Exodus chapter 1. It's a very short chapter. And so what I'm actually going to do is I'm actually going to hand these out and give you five minutes or so to just read it by yourself. All right, I'll guide us through this. You're going to read it by yourself, and I'm actually going to give us a chance to kind of talk about it a little bit. And then I will I'll kind of wrap us up with some discussion of some of the more important themes that come out of this chapter. Um, so could Eliza, maybe could you help maybe... I don't know, Joe or Karen, if you guys come up and help me hand these out. Um, I don't know if there's quite enough copies for everyone. We'll see. But I will give you five minutes. If we don't have quite enough copies, we can share in groups. Um, But once you get them, once you get them, just take a few minutes to read them individually. And I'll guide us through what's next. So what you are about to read, let me just say one thing about where it, the context of it. What you are about to read comes right after the end of the book of Genesis. I'm not going to go into all of it, but what I do want to point out is that Genesis ends Genesis ends with the lineage of Abraham's family being dead in Egypt. It en- literally ends with the, the last line of Genesis is Joseph was dead and buried in Egypt. Like, Genesis ends with death in this kingdom of Egypt. So, the driving narrative of Genesis is God calling Abraham and his family out and saying, I'm going to give you descendants and a land. And then the book of Genesis ends with his lineage dead in Egypt. So the, 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 the story question is, well, what's going to happen? Like, how is God going to make good on the promises God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17? Um, so what we're about to read is picking up right on that, after that line of Joseph being dead in Egypt. Um, the, the, think about those questions. Think about how is God going to make this right? How is God going to fix this? Where is God right now? Um, and where is God, how is God going to make these covenants and these promises good? Um, so, Keep that in the back of your mind. Go ahead and read chapter one. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do it on your own, and then I'll guide us through through what's next. It occurred to me this is going to be really fun for people who like to listen to the recordings of the sermons. This is going to be really fun listening for later. Um, so, what I want you to do next is I actually want you to talk to each other just for a couple minutes. So, and this is not you know, this is not like deep hardcore deep dive archaeological Bible study. This is just. What do you notice from the page? 
Um, I want, just want you to talk to each other for a couple minutes. Just people you're sitting around, maybe move towards some people if you're kind of off on your own. Um, and just share a little bit about observations from this or questions you have that come to mind. Just share those with each other for a little bit. And then after a few minutes of that, um, I want to hear from the group as a whole things that you're noticing. And we'll have some conversation, and then I'll tie it all together. Um, so go ahead and circle up or whatever you want to do it, um, form up, or you just talk to the people you came in with. Um, take a few minutes, just talk to each other about what you're seeing in this, in this section of the story. If uh, someone in your group said something that like, really resonated with you, you can nominate them to share. Um, but my, the one rule for this sharing time is this is about things you see in this text. So resist the urge to say, a book I read once or a sermon I heard once, you know, and then pivot into some other thought. Really try to stick to what you see in the text. Um, and then we'll, we'll have some, I'll, I'll wrap things together and give some closing thoughts on what, what this means for us as we look at the Exodus. But, Erica's smiling. She's like, you're getting this from InterVarsity World. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's hear from each other a bit. So who wants to share an observation they made from the, they see in the story? Give me anything. Who's going to go first? Absolutely. Yes, the midwives are crucial in this story. But yeah, think about that for a second. Midwives. We actually don't know. Um, I dug into this a little bit. It's not clear whether these were Hebrew women or Egyptian women. Um, it's possible It's possible they were Hebrews because those names are Hebraic names. But the way that they talk to Pharaoh makes it sound as though when they say these Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, it makes it sound like they might be Egyptian. So they may be, they may be Egyptian women who were dispatched by Pharaoh to do this job who actually feared the god of these enslaved people more than Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was, they believed, the Egyptians believed... Well, it's arguable, who knows how much the Egyptians actually believed, but it was the, yes, the propaganda around Egypt was that Pharaoh was the enfleshed divinity, right? So, in a way, what this text is saying is that these midwives feared the god of these enslaved people more than the god who literally told them to do this job. Fascinating. Powerful. Um, Yeah, Doug. Yeah. Absolutely. Fear is all over this, right? Fear is all over this. It's a great observation. And, it, and it's, it's, there's an irony. There's almost humor in it of like this Pharaoh is afraid of these enslaved people. Um, right. Um, other observations. And if that sparks thoughts too, it's good to keep things connected. What else? Yep, there's a lot of logic of, I was thinking about it, like logic of empire versus logic of God. And like human kingdom versus God's kingdom and how those things work. Um, Olivia, what were you going to say? Who, who can relate, just first to connect that to us for a second, who can relate to the feeling of fear of making you do something that you know you shouldn't do, <laughs> right? I mean, super relatable. This is all over the story. And, and I mean, it's, it's been said before a lot, but one of the most repeated commands in Scripture is fear not, for I am with you, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's a powerful motivator. And the, the interplay, to go back to Karen as well, the, your comment, the interplay between Pharaoh's logic born out of fear right? Um, and the seeming lack of logic of the midwives is a really, really important context. And what com- what's going to come right after this, chapter 2? Two, chapter 2 starts with the birth of Moses. So the last line is, throw every son into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Well, Moses is going to be thrown into the Nile, but saved, um, and becomes the one that God raises up to actually undo this entire empire that is trying to squander and oppress and, and really kill these people, God's chosen people. 
It's powerful. It's a powerful, con- you know, there's a lot of conversation today about political power, empire, kingdom, you know, especially with everything that's going on in the world. Um, fear and fear combined with human-based power, right, produces anti-kingdom of God results. That's not how God works in the world. Um, so it's a powerful story, really, for our time, I think. Other observations, too. They can be even unrelated to the things that have come up so far. This this requires a little Bible Bible history background, but what Melody's, the threads that Melody's pulling on here are, if anyone remembers what Joseph accomplished, was he basically uh, warned the pre- previous rulership of Egypt about a famine, right? That was, if you know the story of Joseph, he, he, ruled, he warned them about a famine, and so they were saved through that. And so what Melody's alluding to, I think, is that God acted through this man, Joseph, to actually save Egypt... Right, and then this new Pharaoh doesn't remember. And in addition to fear not, for I'm with you, a strong biblical exhortation is to remember. And actually, part of what the text I was reading in between those songs say that, like, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I was I was searching for that phrase a lot this week as I was looking at this particular chapter, and that phrase comes up. It's somewhere between like seventy to ninety times in in Old Testament scripture, maybe even more, depending on how you look at like the original Hebrew, but. It's all over the place. Remember, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Like that. So it's fascinating that this comparing this Pharaoh forgetting to then the Israelites being saved and being commanded all throughout Scripture, remember what I did. Remember that I brought you out of Egypt. Remember, remember, remember. Like, don't forget who you are. And more importantly, don't forget who I am because I acted in this specific way. It's also powerful. I think it's really powerful for us, too, to remember. That's part of what we do here as we gather every week is our rhythm. Like we, we gather and we take communion every week. To remember, like remember, not just that God saved us, but how and what it looked like. And when God says to the Egypt or to the, the Israelites over and over, "Remember, I brought you out of Egypt." It's pulling on a specific story to remember in a specific way. Just like my opening example about the American Revolution story, like that has that that kind of uh, tweaks our mind to think about a certain way about what it means to, quote, be American, right, and how we're supposed to therefore act. It functions in the same way, but this is a story that's supposed to supplant that. And say, remember who I am, how I saved you, how I saved you, what that means about my character, what that means about my intentions for you and for the world. It's a really powerful counter story. Um, maybe one, one, or two other, one or two other comments from maybe things we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, Erica. It's fascinating to try to fill in, imaginatively fill in, right, things that could have happened differently or why did this because it does come back to the question of why I think it comes back to the question of why did it happen this way right yeah yeah oh sorry can you repeat Solomon they couldn't hear basically if Joseph in his position of power had had descendants who he gave his you know rulership to yeah it's it's fascinating because I think in the preaching team we had a really interesting discussion about this very thing like why did it in the bigger story of scripture why did things pivot into Egypt in this way um, and to f- to kind of forecast a bit of where I think the full story goes, I would I would argue that in a world that is subjected to sin and brokenness, and not just individually but uh, politically through political systems, right? It's just th- sin, brokenness, bondage, decay, death. It's all through. It's through all of it. In a world that is subject to that, how does God make God's self known in a way that is non-negotiable to the entire world, right? 
without just repeating the patterns of violence, oppression, you know, death. How does it? How does a, an all-powerful God make make Himself known in a way that doesn't just look like all the cycles of death and oppression and triumph and war in that world? I think Exodus is the answer to that question. This is how God makes God's self known in this way. And so being the Israelites being oppressed under Egypt, under the power of Egypt, and then as we'll see this, I, I prefer the times the, the term signs and wonders instead of plagues um, because they demonstrate wonders of God over and against the gods of Egypt over and over and over and over and over again. Right? And ar- there's an argument that Every play, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but there's an argument that every plague actually corresponds to a member of the Egyptian pantheon, right? So God is systemically dismantling Egyptian, the Egyptian gods over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and then leads them out. And this isn't crucial. This is crucial for Christians, especially to remember that all of that leads towards this, the cross. It's not just power and might demonstrated, get out, make your own kingdom, and then you become power, a powerful nation and oppress others, it's you get out, make a name, be a light for me, in God's perspective, be a light for me, and so that eventually I can show up and show you who I really am. Right? And in fact, later in the story, the Israelites get out, and if you know this, they want to become a king like the other nations. They, in First Samuel 8, read First Samuel 8, they want a king, and it says they want to be like the other nations, and that is grievous to God's heart, because that was never the plan. It wasn't just get out and be a nation and be another power like Egypt was get out, demonstrate my glory um, in this specific way. So, Bill, you were going to say something. You raised your hand a second ago. I've never thought about that nuance there about a new king who did not know about God. Um, although that's, cer- that's certainly true. Or at least if the new pharaoh didn't know about God, he certainly didn't respect this God of these enslaved people, right? It's powerful. Um I want to bring up one more thing, and then I will will tie us together. I'll give a few closing thoughts. Um, One fascinating aspect of this, I'm wondering if anyone noticed this, but kind of back to a few comments that have been made. All of Pharaoh's actions out of fear and hoarding strength and power, every action of Pharaoh intended to subjugate the Israelites results in what? results in their increase. Results in their being fruitful. It results, in fact, in them fulfilling the command that was given to humanity in Genesis, right? Every action of, based in human fear, power, anger, empire, results in these people fulfilling the very thing that God had commanded them to do in the first place. It results in their flourishing. Well, flourishing, I guess, is a different depending on how you nuance that, but it results in their multiplication, results in them filling the earth. The, the creation mandate is to be fruitful and multiply, right? And we see it happening in all of Pharaoh's attempts to squash and oppress. It results in them actually fulfilling the creation mandate. Um, and so what I want to say about all, all of these things, I mean, we've brought, up a lot of, we've brought up a lot of stuff here. What I want to say about the context of this story as we look into Exodus is... The question is, how is God going to make good on the covenant that God made with Abraham and the patriarchs? How is God going to make good on bringing a people into the world? Well, he's going to work through a situation of powerful oppression, through a lot of dark situations, too. He's going to work through that, but he doesn't 
not only does he not lose sight of the commands and the covenants and the promises he made, but the way he does it also reveals who he is. And so what I want to say about that is look at who is named, who gets names, and who doesn't get a name. Right? Who, is, who gets names? The midwives. They are named. Who does not get a name? Pharaoh. Pharaoh has no name because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who this guy is. And the fact that he's not named has vexed historians and archaeologists forever because there's all these efforts to try to figure out who the Pharaoh of the Exodus was. But the Bible is not concerned with who that guy is. God is not concerned with who Pharaoh is. But God is concerned with these Hebrew or maybe Egyptian midwives who are the ones who fear him in defiance of the human logic that Karen brought up earlier. It's like in defiance of human logic, they actually fear this God and they do what God has asked of them. And so they get names. They are the heroic figures that result in the birth, really ultimately the birth of Moses and the one whom God will raise up. And Moses is an unlikely hero as well, as we'll learn as we look at the story. Moses is not another pharaoh. Moses is stumbling. He makes mistakes. Moses doesn't even get into the promised land because of mistakes he makes. Right? And so this, this for me, sets up a really powerful thing for us to all remember and take note of as we press into the Exodus together, which is not only that God stays faithful to God's promises, but also how God stays faithful to God's promises. In the face of human power and might, God sees the midwives. God sees the oppressed. God sees the overlooked, the powerless, the marginalized ones. God sees them. And that, that reveals, because it's very, very fashionable in like justice conversations today to talk about the marginalized and the oppressed, and it's very, it's very um, present in a lot of our conversations today. Um, but it's not just something God does because of an abstract rule. It's something that God does because of who God is. God is, God is loving and to the extent, as Philippians 2 says, that God comes into the world in the form of a slave and walks toward death, even death on a cross. Like, God is, has eyes on the margins. And as Mary prays in the Magnificat, the mighty will be brought down. The mighty who especially use their human, flesh, worldly power to oppress other image of God-bearing people, those mighty will be brought down when this loving king of justice shows up in the world. And so the pharaohs don't get names because they will be brought down in the economy of God. When in the fullness of time, when all things are made right, Pharaoh's name doesn't matter. But these Hebrew midwives matter. Everyone matters, but these Hebrew midwives matter in the story because of the role they played. That is powerful for me. It's a powerful thing for me to remember today. And so as we press into this story uh, over the next few months, um, I just want us to hold on to those. I want us to, to hold on to these ideas about who God is and how God saves. God is faithful to covenants, to the promises God makes. God is just, God is loving, God has God's eye on the marginal and the oppressed and the overlooked. God hears their cry. We'll see in Exodus chapter 3 that it says God hears the cry of suffering from the Israelites and comes down. God hears it. And coming down points towards God coming down in this way, right? There's so many connections about all through the story to what we believe. But God is, God is loving, God is faithful to God's covenants, God is just. And then how he saves demonstrates his power, but he demonstrates his power for the ultimate purposes of actually showing us the extent of his love, which is to empty himself of his power. 
And I'll end by this. Just like the Israelites are in this, they're, they're in this seemingly bleak, seemingly hopeless situation. I mean, this is bleak. Like, a king commanding the death of babies. As a new parent, this hits me in a way that it didn't before when I read that. And it also foreshadows this, uh, what Herod would do later when Jesus came into the world, right? This is bleak. This is dark. But God is not... That's why we actually sang that song, How Firm a Foundation. When through the deep waters I call you to go, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. Like, God is in this, in its bleakest and its darkest moments. And so just like the Israelites, we can look at this story and we can see the Israelites in bondage, in very, like, physical, real, obvious, evident bondage. I would argue that we find ourselves in the same same place. Centuries, millennia later, humans have not freed ourselves. We repeat the same cycles of oppression, violence, injustice, kings overthrow kings, kill others who threaten their power. We're in the same position. We just have different terms. We call it things like democracy and capitalism and whatever. You know, we do the same things, same cycles. And just like the Israelites, we are in bondage to slavery, to sin, to death, to the principalities and powers of the age, to our own unhealth, to our own weaknesses. But God, just like the Israelites, hears the pain. God does not ignore it. God does not abandon God's promises to us. And God is willing to demonstrate his own power in the face of that by actually taking on the worst of all of that stuff on himself. So God leads the people in an exodus, the Israelites in an exodus, out to get to this point to, so that God can actually call forth the powers and principalities and break and shame them on the cross. So this whole story overlays, I think it overlays our own salvation and rescue. God's re- I, I prefer the term rescue from salvation because salvation has gotten so Christian jargonized, you know, like, but we, we have been rescued. God offers us rescue just like he rescued the Israelites from this situation. In a world that attempts to play its own power games just like Pharaoh, God demonstrates God's power to rescue us. And we can look back on this story with the knowledge of the cross. We know where things were going ultimately. And this, we're going to go to communion in a moment. This, I think, is what breaks our own bondage today. The bondage we find ourselves in. The oppression that we find ourselves in. And just like Israel can look at the Exodus as a story of, a defining story of themselves and their own rescue, how that looked, we can look at this story with confidence through the cross, with confidence in our rescuer. So let me pray, and we'll go to communion. Lord, thank you for the story. Thank you for this time. We've had to discuss it this morning. Thank you for thank you for these midwives. Thank you for Shifra and Pua, these named women who courageously stood in the face of the might of Pharaoh. Thank you that your eye is on them. Thank you that You've used their courage to deliver your people and ultimately to deliver us. Lord, may we take great comfort and confidence in the story of the Exodus today and as we go out from here. May you do a new thing in us as we seek to be, as Bill said, as we seek to spread your fragrance and wherever we go from here. May we be freed people, truly freed from what would otherwise oppress us. 
May we be freed and walk in the freedom that you offer to the Israelites and offer to us through your son Jesus and the Holy Spirit who lives with us. In your holy name, amen.